Well, as we come this morning to uh, this last message in section one, and by the way, next Sunday, uh, after service, when we have our luncheon together, and then we come back up here for a question and answer, uh, it's open season on anything that we have studied and talked about during this whole period of time. So write your questions down so you don't forget them, and come and we'll enjoy some uh, question and answer together. But as we come to this last section, um, I'm turning a corner after a brief hiatus. I'm going to be going into the next section of our studies in Genesis, which has to do with cosmology, the creation, the actual uh, biblical record of how the universe was made, how the earth was made, how man was made, and uh, all the animals and plants and all that kind of thing. And we're going to look at that uh, in comparison and contrast to the um, religion that permeates our society, uh, known as uh, evolutionary uniformitarianism. It is a religion, it's not science. And then we're also going to uh, look at the Bible with respect to science. And uh, my point in this whole series of sermons has been to help us understand why it is important to read the first three chapters of Genesis Literally, to understand and interpret them as literal historical uh, revelation in a grammatical historical way that this is an accurate record of what happened the way it happened. Because we've been looking at all the doctrines that have their origin, their, their grounding in these three chapters. And those major doctrines form the teaching of all the rest of Scripture. Now, I've preached 17 sermons. I got out of sequence somehow in my outline. Your, your outline says it's uh, study guide number 18, but I missed 15 somehow. So there's been 17 sermons on the doctrines that find their beginning in Genesis, and it's by no means exhaustive. You know, I've thought about so many other teaching that I could bring out of this section, and I guess I could go on for a very long time. And I uh, just decided I'm not going to go there. But I think that it does uh, prove the point that all the important truths of the Bible begin in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. I think over the last uh, six months that, that we can all come to that conclusion, that they all have their beginning there. And I would not go so far to say this morning that you cannot be saved if you don't believe that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is literally true. Everyone comes to Christ with... with uh, you know, uh, uh, in blindness, and they come in repentance, and they come to faith, and faith is born in their heart, and the process of sanctification and growth in Christ is growth in understanding. So, I'm not going to make a statement that you can't be saved if you don't believe that these chapters are literal. That will come down the road, I think, in the life of a true believer. But I will say this, that if you're down the road, and you understand the teaching of the Scripture, and you understand what it says about man's sin and salvation in Jesus Christ, you know that if you do away with Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you destroy the gospel. It's that important. You cannot deny the historic validity of these chapters and have a gospel left. Because the whole teaching of sin, the whole teaching of the nature of human beings, the whole need for atonement, the whole new birth experience, the whole salvation thing is based in Genesis and the problem that occurs there. And God has given us this record for our information so that we can understand our need of a Savior. <clears throat> These chapters aren't that important. Well, today we come to the specific topic of the existence of the devil and the problem of evil. And while it's not a fun study, as I've said, it is one that we do need to understand because the Scripture says uh, we are not ignorant of his devices, speaking of the devil. And the fact of the matter is many people are ignorant of his devices. Paul made that statement uh, <coughs> to people whom he had trained and taught and schooled. And we should not be ignorant of the wiles of the devil, but many believers are. Many believers are not even sure if there is a devil. There are people out there today who claim to believe the Bible that deny a personal devil and the personality of evil. And so they, you know, they just talk about the force and uh, they don't understand what's going on around them in the world. 
We need to understand something about Him. But we also need to do this in a Christocentric way. Jesus Christ needs to be the center and focus of all of our study. And it's never more important than when we come to a study of understanding the devil. It's never more important to have Jesus Christ in the forefront of our thinking. God has not called us to dwell upon the things that are on this earth, nor has He called us to dwell upon the evil. Uh, whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are virtue, if there's, you know, if there's goodness and of praise and it's trust, those things we set our minds on, <coughs> not the things that are on the earth. But someone, Ryan, would you be so kind as to get me a cup of water from the office? I would appreciate it. Thank you so much. <coughs> I don't know. I, well, I do know what's got me, but I, and I know why. But anyway, uh, you can pray for my uh, aggravated throat. Uh, first hour, it was a fever and a headache, and, and my eyes wouldn't focus. Now it's, uh, I, I'm having a tickle in my throat. Guess why? Just cannot imagine what this might have to do with anything. But we need to keep Jesus Christ in the forefront of our thinking. If you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God, keep seeking those things above. Thank you so very much. Keep seeking those things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things which are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Friends, that's where our focus needs to be is Jesus Christ, even when we're studying the devil. So, I just want to say that this morning and kind of lay the groundwork there. I'll share a little story with you. I shared with the 8 o'clock group, I had some... Finishing touches I wanted to put on my outline, and I had some more reading I wanted to do over the week. So I was going to do that this morning. When I got in, I normally get here early, so I, I came in and I finished up my outline, and I got it all ready to go about, uh, I don't know, 7.15 or so. Um, my computer froze. I couldn't print it on my printer. I tried emailing it to myself. That didn't work. I went to my other email account, I tried emailing it that way, thinking I would go to one of the office computers and download it. That didn't work, it never would come up, it was out there in cyberspace somewhere. Then I went back to my computer and decided I would try to print it on a local printer, and, and I went to that, and then it stopped, because even though I said print it in black and white, it says you have no green ink, so you can't print. And by this time, it's like five to eight. And I'm thinking... There is no way that 40 minutes of calamity in every machine I can think of is an accident. I mean, it is just, every one of those things has happened at one time or another, but they have never all happened at the same time, in the same event, took 45 minutes to get this thing out of the computer this morning. So... Uh, friends, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. And we need to be aware of that. Sometimes in the West, in this country, we just don't think that way. Rowena was taking a missions course called Perspectives, and they had a guest speaker from India. And he was talking about the demonic activity in India and the need for deliverance and all of that kind of thing. And and someone asked the question, you know, do you think there are demons are active in the West where we're more enlightened? <laughs> oh, man, it's like he says, you may not recognize them, but I see them everywhere. We are blinded. We're not enlightened. We're in darkened. And we have a mindset that just doesn't recognize the reality of supernatural evil all around us. And that's the battle that we fight. And so Genesis gives us the foundation for it. We need to understand that. Look with me in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. He was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said... You need to turn me down just a little bit, Carissa, please. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. Uh, good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and is desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. One of the interesting things that comes out, and what I want to do is look at this passage and say what truths come off the page for us and, and kind of are there for us to, to, to reckon with. One of the things we need to understand is that nowhere does the Bible really explain the origin of evil in the universe or exactly how the devil came to be the devil. Just as the Bible begins without any explanation of God, it simply declares the truth in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. The Bible never seeks to defend him, never seeks to prove his existence, just simply declares the fact God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible does not give us detailed understanding of how the devil came to be the devil, or where evil came from, or how it started, or exactly what event took place. We are not given specifics on that, but... Any fool should be able to look around and see the problem. And the Bible simply declares in chapter 3 that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. And we learn that Satan has personified himself in this beast. And here is the devil presenting a temptation kind of out of the blue coming to you. Here's what happened. And I just want to say something here at the outset. I'm going to deal with it a little more later in the message. But, friends, we come to the Scriptures on the basis of faith. Just as God confirms in our heart that we are His children, <clears throat> and we have this witness of the Spirit in our lives that you are, you are children of God. He is the one who cries out within us, Abba, Father. Just as the Holy Spirit bears witness that we are children of God, so the Holy Spirit bears witness to the truth of Scripture. And we come to the Scripture by faith, and we bow before God, and we receive the Scriptures by faith in what they say. There are people who want answers for every little question. They want to, to know everything. They want an explanation for everything. And, and I want us to understand this morning that God did not see fit to explain everything to us. There is an explanation I'm quite confident God has it. But He did not see fit to tell us all the details. And I may presume that the reason that that is, is A, I don't need to know it. And B, <clears throat> I may not be able to handle it. Knowing it may actually be a detriment to me. And God in His love has told me what I need to know. Now, I realize there are unbelievers who could be listening to this you know, somewhere, or maybe someone even in this room, or there are even believers that have to have all the answers, and they don't like that. And they look at that as a cop-out. But that's the truth. God doesn't tell us all the answers to all the questions. He is God, I am not. And I have the witness of the Holy Spirit that His Word is true, and that's where I begin. And it is, And we go from there, and if it's not stated... We need to leave the, the, the question open. But there are some hints, there are some indications as to uh, where the devil came from. And interestingly enough, they're found in two of the Old Testament prophets. And I'll tell you how you can remember this, at least this is how I remember it. I said this in the 8 o'clock service and somebody said, that works for me, it would never work for my wife. Well, we're all wired differently, <clears throat> so if it works for you, here it is. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Isaiah 14, two books over, is Ezekiel 28. So Isaiah 14 times 2 makes Ezekiel 28. See, if you, if you get 14 times 2, you'll never forget that, right? Some of you will never forget that. But those are the two chapters in the Bible that do give us some insight 
into who the devil is and where he came from. And in Isaiah 14, if you will turn there with me in your Bible, let's look at some of this. In both of these cases, the prophet begins talking about a human ruler. In Isaiah's case, it's Babylon. In Ezekiel's case, it's Tyre. But he begins talking about a human ruler, but then moves behind the scenes to the power behind the power. And as he makes this move, he says things that don't quite reckon with the human person that has been in focus. And let me say also that on the planet today, Satan's desire from the very beginning in corrupting humanity and and the earth has been to rule here through the hearts of men and women who are yielded to him. And he is always behind the scenes in operation. And in every government office on the face of the planet, in every king's palace, in every president's office, in every congress, in every parliament, in every committee and local government, Satan or his demonic powers are present seeking to influence the destinies of nations and states and cities and human beings. Don't miss that reality. He is always behind the scenes. And the other thing that we need to recognize, and sometimes as we talk about American politics, we don't recognize this very well, we talk about our evil politicians. And we've all become acquainted with the whole debacle that's been on the news in the last week or two, you know, about one fellow who was pretty stupid and, and immature and foolish, and we could say a lot of things. But, but here's, <clears throat> here's what I believe, at least in our country, for the most part, most people do not seek public office because they are inherently wicked and want to gain power so they can destroy their city, state, or nation. That's not their goal. Now, some of them want to gain power so they can embellish their own lives, but, but they typically do not set out to wreak havoc and bring destruction. They typically want to do something beneficial for their constituents. I mean, that's the motivation. But the reality is that they're being influenced. If they don't know Jesus Christ, they're in the clutches of the enemy. If they do know Christ and aren't aware of what's going on, they're still being influenced. Because the whole world lieth in the evil one. And even when they're doing what they think is best, there is a goal in mind that is not good for us. It is taking us down the path of destruction. It is ultimately leading to a one-world government. It is ultimately moving toward the tribulation and the Antichrist. That's where the world is going. By well-intentioned people who are not aware that they are puppets whose strings are being pulled by a mastermind who has a much more malevolent purpose. And in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, we kind of get a glimpse into this. If you look at Isaiah, I'm just going to jump in Isaiah 14, verse um, 11, because it gives us a little bit of insight and it gives us this word that is kind of interesting. Your pomp and the music of your harps have brought you down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. Now, that verse 12 in chapter 14 of Isaiah, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, it's also translated (coughs) star of the dawn, son of the morning. And in the King James Bible, The word Lucifer is introduced here. It's the only place it's found in Scripture. And the reason is, is because there is a word here in the Hebrew and also in the Greek Septuagint that no one knows how to translate. There's there's something here that is somewhat ambiguous in terms of translation. It's not a word that's used any other place. But when we glean from the words that we do understand that Isaiah is now referring not to a human being, but to someone who was the the morning star, the sun of the dawn, 
someone who was bright and radiant, someone who was powerful. The King James Bible introduces the word Lucifer because it's kind of a transliteration of some of what is there. And when, when we look at this passage, we, we can read, How you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the morning, star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities and did not allow his prisoners to go home? And all the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, and so on and so forth. And if you read the book of Revelation, there's actually a projection there to the future when Antichrist comes to rule. And, and pulls all the nations of the earth together, but ultimately leads the earth into ruination and destruction. And there's something revealed to us here in the nature of this person. I will be like the Most High. I will rise above the clouds and make my, my throne in the heavens. I will be like the Most High. The ambition of Lucifer. In Ezekiel... Chapter 28, we get some more information, if you'd like to turn there with me. The first half of the chapter is referring to the Prince of Tyre, the leader of Tyre, T-Y-R-E. But when you get to verse 11, a transition occurs, and we begin to realize that someone is being spoken of who is not a human being. Verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fires. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they could see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you and consumed you and turned you to ashes upon the earth in the eyes of all who will see you. Here are things that are said. You were in Eden in the day that I created you, in the time that I created all the precious stones and minerals. You were there. I gave you a position as an anointed cherub, the one who covers. You were perfect in your splendor and beauty and blameless in all your ways. We don't know exactly when the angels were made. Some people believe that they were made before Genesis 1-1 opens. Others believe that they were made during the creative week. We're not specifically told the answer to that. Again, there's some mystery there. Genesis 1-1 may be focusing on the physical universe, and the spiritual universe may already have been made. We don't know that. 
The other thing that we recognize, though, is that by the end of day six, God looked at everything he had made and said it is good. It is very good. And so we can presume that by the end of creation, everything in the universe was still good. And we know from Isaiah that this cherub who covers was made perfect and blameless and beautiful and glorious. There were many uh, desirable attributes in him until evil was found in his heart. So, we know that the devil, or Satan as we know him, was not originally made the devil. He was originally made an angelic being. He was made perfect. He was beautiful. If the King James Version is correct in giving us a transliteration of the name Lucifer, he is one of three angels whose names we know. Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. And it could be that they are the the trilogy that were created by God as the highest angelic host. We, uh, We don't know that for sure either. But we know that Michael and Gabriel have specific roles to play. And we find them appearing in other places of Scripture. We also find Daniel reporting to us that there was a conflict where uh, Michael and, and the enemy, Lucifer, apparently were going toe-to-toe and head-to-head, and it delayed a response. They seemed to be on equal footing, and there was some, uh, some, a bit of a contest going on there. The Bible just gives us glimpses. But one thing we know is that God is not responsible for the evil that appeared in Satan. He made him perfect and blameless and beautiful. Now, just as human beings were given a choice, so the implication of Scripture is that angels were given a choice. They were afforded an opportunity to make a decision. We have learned from Scripture that God does not want anyone to love Him and serve Him because they have to. He wants us to respond to Him because we want to. And Adam and Eve were the head of a race. God made them male and female, made them sexually reproducing beings who were able to procreate after their kind, and consequently the decision that they made, because it is passed down through the procreative process, through birth and and transmission of the species, They have passed their sin down to all of us. But angelic beings were apparently created all together as a race. The scripture, I mean, not as a race, but as as a company. The scripture says there were myriads upon myriads, or thousands or ten thousands upon ten thousand. That the angels were created as the heavenly host. And. As a result of that, the Bible also tells us they don't marry or give in marriage. There's no sexual reproduction among the angels. So they were all made together at one time or within a time frame. And apparently they were given an opportunity to make a choice. And some of them, Lucifer, decided he wanted to be God. He didn't want to serve God, he wanted to be God. He wanted to usurp the throne. And somewhere in that process, he made that decision, and we know that a host of angels followed him. We don't know how many. Some would say a third, and we kind of get that from inference. Some people take that from Revelation chapter 12, where it talks about the dragon sweeping away a third of the stars of heaven. But... Most commentators that look at that and and evaluate it at face value say that it's difficult to find that there. I've looked in several and, you know, they, they come to the conclusion it's hard to extract that from Revelation chapter 12. So we don't know how many angels went with him. But what we do know is 
that at some point in time, unknown to us, an opportunity was made to make a decision, am I going to be a loyal servant of God or not? And Lucifer, however, whenever, wherever it occurred, decided that he was not. And he rebelled against God in his effort to become like God. Now, there are those who would like to logically trace sin all the way back to God. And friends, we can't go there. There are those who want to say that God set this whole thing up to work out His glory in all dimensions. But there is no way that you can trace the origin of sin back to God biblically. In my book, that's blasphemy. The Scripture says, in Him, there is no darkness at all. 1 John 5, or 1 John 1, 5. In Him is light. He is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. <clears throat> and this is where we come to the reality that there are many things in Scripture that we do not have a need to know. What was the world like during Noah's time when the flood occurred? <clears throat> we don't know. We know a little bit. We know that it was evil. The thoughts of men's hearts and minds were evil continually. We know that. We're told that. that. That nobody really had any good thoughts. Can you imagine living in a world where there was no altruism, no philanthropism? However motivated, there were no good thoughts. I mean, that, that was a horrible place. God's not speaking theoretically and theologically. He's speaking practically. Nobody had anything good to think or say or do. He regretted that he had made man on the earth. But we are not told the depth of their depravity. We're only told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord and God chose him to start over. And he destroyed that race, humanity at that time, except for Noah and his family. And when we look at the destruction in the flood geology, there is not a trace. I find it very interesting. I mean, there's a there's trace of the flood. But there's no information about what that world was like or what people did. We haven't found any libraries dating from the pre-deluge. You remember when the Israelites were about to go into the land of Canaan? And God said to them, when you go into the land of Canaan and, and you find them worshiping other gods and all these kinds of things, do not Go after their gods. Do not even inquire about them, but annihilate the people. My paraphrase. But the, but the statement is there. Do not inquire about the ways of the Canaanites. Just annihilate them. We look back on that from our lofty vantage point of enlightenment, and we say, what a barbaric God, that must have been. But the truth of the matter is, the iniquity of the Canaanites had ripened. It was a season when they had come to the end of their rope. And their wickedness was so evil that God knew that it would be dangerous for His people to even investigate. The only solution for the Canaanites to save Israel was to wipe them out. And that was merciful. You know, we, we have a distorted perspective, but God knows best. And friends, I want to tell you today that I take with a great deal of seriousness, seriousness and sobriety those warnings. I love books. Those of you that know me at all know that I love books. I have thousands of books. Bookstores are among my favorite places on the planet. I love to go to a bookstore. It was so sad when borders closed up here because now I have to drive to Crystal Lake again. I like to go to a bookstore. I like to roam the aisles and read this and read that. 
But in 45 years of buying books and roaming bookstores, I will tell you before the Lord, honestly, I have never gone down the aisles of astrology, New Age, or the occult, or witchcraft. I do not read the titles. I do not look at the literature. I want to know nothing about it. I do not watch occult movies. I do not expose myself to demonic teachings. In 45 years of looking at books and looking at television, I have never intentionally exposed myself to anything demonic. And there's a reason for that. There is knowledge we don't need to know. And to know it will lead us astray. And God has chosen simply not to report a lot of things we don't need to know. And we don't need to know it. I know everything about demons that I need to know from the Bible. And among the things I need to know is that in Jesus Christ I am more than conqueror. That I do not need to be afraid because God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of love and power and of a sound mind. And that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that through Jesus Christ, in his death and burial and resurrection, I have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly realms, far above every principality and power and dominion and name that is named in heaven and on earth. And that seated there with Jesus Christ in the heavenlies, if I put on the whole armor of God and trust and put my faith in Jesus Christ, I can triumph over the powers of darkness. I've been involved in deliverance ministries and I have dealt with demons. But I have not read their books. I don't need to read their books. I get from the scriptures everything I need to know. God has made it plain that there are things into which we do not need to inquire. We don't know what Babylon, the tower, I mean, the Tower of Babel was like. We don't know what was going on there. That was not just a tall building. That was an object of worship reaching into the heavens to, to look into astrology. By the way, I don't read the horoscopes. I do not read them. I have never read them in the paper. That is a dangerous place to go. I don't play with Ouija boards. There are things I simply refuse to do because they are always, always, always demonic. They are never anything else. And we have no idea what Babel was like, but we do know that it was religious. The goal was, in defiance of God, to congregate together and to build a tower to the heavens where they once again could control their destiny as a race. And God destroyed it and confused the language so that they would do what He told them to do, fill the earth, multiply, move over the planet. Oh no, we're going to stay together and do it our way. <clears throat> I said that in the <laughs> other service too, and I realized I might have got myself in trouble. Sometimes you can offend people uh, unwittingly. But it is not... A great song, I did it my way. That comes right out of the pit of hell. That is the problem that we have. And we'll get there in a minute. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. You know? There's been all kinds of conjecture, but there's not a person on the planet that can tell me what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. We can talk about it. In fact, we can say from the scripture, the literal wording is, it was a messenger from Satan. The literal translation is, it was an angel from the devil. It was a demon. Now go figure that one out. I can't figure that out. But I do know that God said, while I am not going to remove it, I will give you grace. My grace is sufficient, for my strength will be made perfect in your weakness. We don't know if it was physical. We don't know what it was. Some people said, say, well, it was some sort of a besetting sin. I don't believe that. God's not going to leave sin in your life. Come on. If you're struggling with sin, God wants you to have victory over that. The whole Bible teaches that. It wasn't something Paul was sinning over. It was something that was afflicting him in some way. 
and it was not being removed. And that's all we know. We don't know exactly what that was, and but yet we're given enough information to understand that these things happen. And God, that's what God wants us to know from that. So we are not given this kind of information in detail. And friends, I, I hope you don't think it a cop-out to say we have the biblical revelation which is sufficient. There is a real devil. He is a, a wicked, fallen angel. God did not make him evil. He made himself evil after God created him perfect. And he took a group of devils or, or angels, demons with him. And they now roam the planet as the prince of the powers of the air. He is the prince of the powers and they are the powers of the air. And that is where our struggle lies. Once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we get nailed up on a bulletin board in the demonic squad room somewhere as demonic enemy number one. And our face is in their post office as on the wanted list. And we become the people that they especially hate and desire to destroy. But here's what we do know from Scripture. God is good, and there's no sin in Him. He made everything good and without sin. The Bible teaches that. You can't take your theology anywhere else. Creating freedom of the will does not imply responsibility of the Creator for choices made with that will. See, some people like to say, God is responsible because He gave a free will and He knew what was going to happen, so He should have stopped it. Some people go even further in the hyper-Calvinistic camp, and I mean hyper side, and say God predestined it. Well, number one, creating a person with a free will does not mean you are morally responsible for what they do with it. Because the Bible teaches that. And number two, the Bible does not teach that God predestined the fall. Because I can't go anywhere else logically than to make God responsible if He predetermined it to occur. So there was true freedom... At the foot of that tree in the garden, there was true freedom. They did not have to sin. They chose to sin in the parameters of freedom that God gave them, but it was not predetermined, predestined. They had a choice, and they made the wrong choice. And because of that, the earth and the human race has been plunged into moral ruin. Now, what can we say absolutely about this struggle with evil from Genesis? We know that Satan fell through his desire to be God. And at the root of it, friends, every temptation stems from that desire. Think about it. When Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden, he raised a question. Has God said you may eat of any tree of the garden? Automatically, the question is designed to make you think of the one thing you can't do. Oh, we can eat of any tree of the garden except the one that's in the middle of the garden. God said, don't eat of it and don't touch it. Now, God didn't say don't touch it, but we've been over that before. That's where we get into trouble with rationalization. I don't know when the sin started in their hearts, but it, it was already on the roll. And he says, ha, God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And he's, holding back from you. Wouldn't you like to be independent? 
Wouldn't you like to be able to do it on your own? Wouldn't you like to be able to make your own decisions instead of having to talk with Him every day? Find out what He wants you to do. Just do what you want to do. You can be like God. And you'll have the smarts to make the choices. There's the lure. And the temptation is to be independent, to be sovereign, to be autonomous. I want to do it my way. That is the desire to be God. There's only one person in all the universe that is totally autonomous. And that is God. And if you want to be autonomous, then you want to be God. There's no other conclusion. Even though it's not put in those terms, that's exactly where it goes. Satan wanted to be like God. And when he presents a temptation in Genesis, he wants them to be like God, they think. And here's the other thing that we just need to, as one of my family members from way back used to say, put this in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) I guess today that could have all kinds of meanings, couldn't it? But here's something to take to the bank, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. Here's the deal. You and I were not made to be totally free. We were made to be under the authority of God. And if you're not under the authority of God, you're not free. You're under the authority of the devil. There are no other choices. There is no middle ground. You either serve God or you serve Satan. And every moment of your life, you're doing one or the other. Now, hopefully, if you're a child of God, you're not doing very much of the other. But when we confess our sins, the word confess means homo legao, homo from homogenize, legao to speak. Homo legao means to say the same thing that God is saying. So confession is not going through some ritual. Confession is saying the same thing that God says about what you've done. And when you come to terms with God in agreement with what you've done, the bottom line is, I followed the devil and wanted to do it my way. That's the bottom line. That's what it means. Because if you're not following God, that's the only other option. And we need, to, we need to get that down very clearly. All temptation ultimately arises at some point from the desire to be God. Secondly, the enemy is a liar. We get this right out of the beginning. <clears throat> and the father of lies, Jesus says in John eight forty four, and bases all of his work in deception. He always offers what he cannot deliver. In fact, he offers what he has no intention of delivering. Has God really said? Well, he knows that in the day you eat of it, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. Part of that statement is true. They will know good and evil. They will not know good and evil the way God knows it. God knows evil without being evil. They're going to know it because they are it. The other thing that he fails to mention is that when you eat of it and know good and evil, you will be under my control. He doesn't bother to tell them that little detail. And friends, we need to recognize that every time we face temptation and we're lured into the deception, the ultimate goal is to bring us under satanic control. He doesn't give us freedom. He doesn't give us liberty. He brings us into bondage. He lays a snare. He intends to entrap. His goal is to rule your life. 
Only Jesus Christ frees us from that power. Only Jesus Christ liberates us to be what we were meant to be. But Satan's goal is always, with the hook, to lure us into bondage. How many people have started down one road or another thinking, I'm going to get this. And then they get something very different. You know, and when we say that, we, all, we always think of all the biggies, you know, alcoholism, drug addiction, fueling hatred, resulting in murder, yada, yada, yada. We all, you know, we always think of these things. What about the person that just believes that they can make a lot of money if they just do certain things? about the people who think they can get something for nothing? Who think that this scheme or that scheme is going to make them rich? Who invest themselves in the pursuit of wealth? How many people think, uh, I will be happy if I can be in charge? So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be the boss. I'm gonna be the top dog. I'm gonna be the governor, and that'll make me happy. How many people think they're gonna be happy if they just? There's all kinds of pursuits, friends, and there's a barb because if it's not the pursuit of God, it leads to bondage. One way or another. And, and we, need, you know, we need to have our eyes open because he is the father of lies. He never tells the truth and he never delivers. I will never forget that my, my childhood, actually a junior high, high school buddy, good friend of mine, we were you know, really close. And then I had a significant revival in my life and began to pursue God with all of my heart. And he didn't follow in that direction. And, you know, we were uh, moving along and I was sharing with him, him the things I was learning and the truths that I was discovering. And and one day he cut his hand pretty badly on a tin can top. I mean, really sliced it open. And, um, you know, it was, it was a bad cut. It was starting to get infected. And so um, his mother had heard of a faith healer who healed in the name of Jesus. And she took him to this faith healer. Now, the thing that should have tipped them off was that she also held seances and read tarot cards. But she used the name of Jesus. There should have been a light bulb go on somewhere because the parents were Presbyterian, they weren't pagan, and they should have known better. But that's where he went. And she prayed for him. And his hand was healed within the day completely. No scar. Not from God, though. Satan did it. Yeah, <laughs> stay with me. <laughs> stay with me. Yeah, because Satan did the healing. Okay, very important. The woman who prayed in the name of Jesus was a spiritist medium who held seances and read tarot cards. But she prayed in the name of Jesus. But there were spirits who took the name Jesus in the Scriptures. You know? That's why in some ways when you're dealing with demonic powers, you need to... to I'm not trying to get too crazy here, but you, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one I mean. The Lord Jesus Christ, maker of heaven and earth. That's the one I mean. Now, this guy got a healing. And before the year was out, he was hopelessly in drug addiction. And he had never touched drugs before that day. 
He was hopelessly in drug addiction. He ended up selling drugs. He ended up going to jail for a while. And it was a long path, about ten years before he ever came back to God. I remember, you know, having him in my home when he couldn't even walk down the hall without bouncing off the walls. He was into hallucinogens and everything. And I... And God spoke to my spirit the day he told me about his healing and said to me, there is a bondage associated with this. And he died in his 20s. He died in his 20s. Friends, the devil never gives you anything. He never delivers There's always a catch. He destroys. He is a liar. That's who he is. And he is not above any means by which he can accomplish that end. He always comes as an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11.11 says he disguises himself as an angel of light. He always looks good. I mean, if he showed up as the devil, nobody would... Pay attention to him. But he doesn't show up as the devil. He shows up in in a disguise. Something that looks attractive. And he sucks you in. And the end result is always loss and death. Now, I want to leave you with this. Adam and Eve did not have to sin. They had a choice. And when they stood at the foot of that tree and the temptation was presented, I believe God had given them the freedom to make that decision. They didn't rule the universe. They weren't autonomous. But they had that freedom to make that decision. And friends, you and I, restored in Jesus Christ, filled with His Spirit, empowered by His Spirit, and indwelt by the living presence of God, restored to that pre-Adamic state, that pre-fall state in Adam, where we, like him, are indwelt by the living presence of the living God, we too have choices when we're confronted with sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. Now, I want you to listen carefully to the words. No temptation is taken you, but such as is common to man. In other words, you ain't special. Okay? No one in this room has ever been tempted in a way that no one else has ever been tempted, including Jesus Christ. We're all tempted in the same ways. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon that said, if you want, if you want to nail your congregation, if you want to hit the nail on the head regarding sin, just talk about your own temptations, your own sins. You don't have to say they're yours, but just talk about them. And, and everybody will, will relate and connect. Because we all face the same things. Some people are more prone one way or another, but we're all in the same, we're all in the same soup. There is no temptation that ever comes to you, but such as is common to human beings, everybody's experienced. And with most of them, God will help you out. Did I misquote the verse? <laughs> what, what, is, what does it say? Okay, with the temptation. With what temptation? What temptation? A little exegesis here, come on. The ones that you're, the one you're facing. Alright? The one you're facing. How many temptations do you need to worry about today? The one in front of you. Okay? You only need to worry about the one in front of you. The one after that is not your problem. It's only the one in front of you. Now, what, what about the one in front of you? What will God do? But with the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape. So, will God provide the way of escape when you're confronted with temptation? What does the Scripture say? So, let me ask you a question. Can you justify sinning? Well, as long as I'm in the body, I'm going to sin. I can't help it. I'm only human. 
Oh, gosh, I grew up with that one. Every temptation that we are given, God will make a way of escape. I want to, I want to find this in New American Standard. Excuse me just a minute. But with the temptation, we'll provide the way of escape that you can endure it. Okay, what does that mean? What does endure the temptation mean? Okay. With what result? Victory, right? Jesus endured the temptations. That means he never yielded. So, let's apply the verse. What is it saying? Every time you're tempted, every time you're tempted, when you face the temptation, it will not be unusual or special. It'll be the same kind everybody else faces, including Jesus. And when you face it, God Himself will make a way of escape that you can endure it. Who makes the way? God makes the way of escape. Okay, so where should you look when you're tempted? Set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So you look up to Him when you're tempted, and He will make a way of escape that you can endure it. Okay, if you take them one at a time and apply this verse by faith, can you live through the day without sinning? I see, we don't want to go there, do we? We don't like that. We want a little wiggle room. But there isn't any. There's no excuse. We have the power of God to face every temptation in the power of God and to escape without sinning. Now, someone will say to me, and I've got this in one of my questions on the back, they'll say, uh, John Wesley preached a sermon like this, and at the end of it, some woman came up to him. This reported in one of the journals. Some woman came up to him and, quoting the Westminster Catechism, said, Mr. Wesley, I'll have you know that I sin every day in every way, in thought and word and deed. And he looked at her and said, Madam, you better quit it. That's it. Now, she was saying in the ultimate sense of the holiness and perfection of God, I fall short. You and I do. But I'm not talking, don't go there, because people use that as an excuse. Okay, well, I'm not God. No, you're not. You never will be. You're not supposed to be. Well, I'm not perfect. No, you're not. And, you, and, and you've got a ways to go. But you do know what temptation is in front of you. You know that. You may learn next week that you've been doing something for years that God's not happy about. And He will tell you next week. And then you become aware of that thing. But you know what temptation is in front of you. And our problem is not what we don't know, but what we do know. And we are brought to liberty to the place of choice by the power of the Holy Spirit. And with every temptation, God will make a way of escape that we can endure it. Friends, the earth is corrupt. The planet is on a downward spiral. But God, by His grace and mercy, has redeemed us. He has plucked us from the burning. He has taken us out of the destruction. He has given us of His Spirit. He has adopted us as His own children. We belong to Him. We bear His likeness and character. We have His Spirit. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us. We need to recognize that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. We need to put on the whole armor of God, put on the helmet of salvation, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the girdle of truth, put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace, take up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, with which uh, those two you can quench every flaming missile of the evil one. And having done all, stand firm. 
in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the strength of His might. Stand firm. You do not have to be afraid of the devil. You don't have to yield to the devil. You don't have to be controlled by the devil. Jesus Christ has triumphed. He's told us what we need to know. He's told us where the problem started. He's told us what we face. And He's given us the authority and power in Jesus Christ to walk in victory. Let us exalt the name of Jesus and take Him at His word. That's what we need to know. Father, thank You for Your word to us this morning. Drill it into our hearts. May we not forget it. Bind the enemy who comes and snatches it away. May this seed grow and bloom in our lives. And Lord, may we realize in no uncertain terms that there are only two paths to walk. Following you, following the enemy. Help us to see sin in those very clear, concrete, and black and white terms as the Holy Spirit guides our lives to know when He speaks to us to say, Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.